Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. We're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, and, of course, the forthcoming Simple Homebrew, just a few short months before it can be in your fun little hands. That's right. Look for it at the beginning of June. Now, between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. Well, and on today's episode, as we always do, we're going to have a little bit of feedback. We're going to have some questions. We're going to go to the pub and talk about some of the latest beer news. And in the brew, we're going to explore some, some interesting questions about hops and some unfortunate things that can happen in your brewing experiences and what to do about it. And before we go to the lounge, where, well, the lounge is going to be a little different. Denny, why don't you describe the lounge today? The lounge is going to be a drunken Drew talking to drunken Maltose Falcons about the Brew with the Falcon Day. Hey, I object. I wasn't drunk. I was buzzed. Okay. We'll let people decide for themselves after they hear it. (laughs) And then, of course, we're going to go on. We're going to get out of here with something other than beer and a couple of questions for you. But, you know. Before we can do that, we got to do other things. That's right. We're going to start off with a message from some of the people who make this show possible. So take a listen, and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, who invites you to attend HomebrewCon this June 27th to June 29th in Providence, Rhode Island. HomebrewCon brings 3,000 homebrewers together for three days of brewing, seminars, nighttime events, and camaraderie. HomebrewCon is also the leading showcase of brewing supplies and equipment. Visit homebrewcon.org to learn more. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Welcome back. We're here, and we're glad that you are, too. Before we get going here, we have a few announcements, and the first one is about a wonderful event that will be going on at Mecca Grade Estate Malt over in Madras, Oregon, over Memorial Day weekend. They're having an event called Brewing Man. There's camping. There's talks by commercial brewers and home brewers. There's lots and lots of beer. There's going to be a wonderful farm-to-table dinner one night. There will be uh, food trucks there for the rest of the time. So if you're interested in going to this event, go to the website at mechagrade.com, and you can sign up, get your tickets for Brewing Man. Uh, based on other events I've been to at Mechagrade, it's going to be a ton of fun and really, really well put together. Those guys do a great job. And Denny has an RV. Yes, yes. 
I have a, well, more like a small motorhome, but I'm going to be parking over there and setting up a little remote studio and doing some interviews with some of the people there. So we'll have some interesting things to listen to once I come back. Indeed. And speaking of interesting things to listen to, don't forget that last week saw the episode 58 of the Brew Files released all about Merton and Oktoberfest beer. And well, just really, what is the difference and how do you make them? So go listen to that. I think you'll enjoy it, and we're, well, you know, by the time you hear this, it'll be too late for March, but not too late to make an Oktoberfest. <laughs> That's right. It's never too late. The other big event coming up is Homebrew Con, which takes place June 27th through 29th in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, we hope to see you there. It's a big, big party, and there's a lot of educational stuff going on. Drew and I will be doing a seminar. I'll be uh, involved in another seminar with uh, Martin Brungard, Jeff Gladish, and Amanda Burkamper. We'll be talking about homebrewing myths, so come and ask us about stuff that you don't believe, and we'll tell you if it's right or not. And, of course, there will be other festivities happening all around the spread of HomebrewCon, but yeah, you should come. This will be the first time HomebrewCon has been in New England since the 90s when it was in Manchester, New Hampshire. So Yeah, it's been a long time. Yeah, so come on and join us in Providence, Rhode Island. We promise that you'll have a good time, but no guarantees. We don't have that kind of money. <laughs> now, don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA, brewswag.com, code word experimental, Amazon, Brewers Friends, or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It is Wings of Rescue, a 501c3 all-volunteer organization that takes animals from shelters where they're going to be euthanized and flies them to no-kill shelters. Uh, a great, great thing to happen, and we hope that you'll help us support them. Indeed. Remember, pooches are good. Now, as we always do, it is time for your feedback. feedback. That's right. We get uh, feedback, and one of our first pieces of feedback actually comes from Paul Ravel, who, in episode 87, he sent in the story about his dry hop creep experience, or what he thought might be his dry hop creep experience. We had some questions about it and as we were talking about it, and so Paul wrote into us, and he said, Hi, guys. Thanks for the readout on the podcast. I'm glad it sparked some, some debate. As far as I'm concerned, it was just an interesting finding, as there was way too many variables, of course. However, there was definitely plenty of yeast in suspension still as I added the hops and watched the specific gravity drop before I cold crashed. My hydrometer reading samples were cloudy. Try now to work out how to fit two fermenters into my fermentation fringe for a proper side-by-side -side study. Thanks again, Paul. So... Paul uh, did address some of the concerns that we had, and so there was plenty of yeast still left in suspension. So, again, not sure if he was seeing dry hop creep or if the yeast were being roused up because the hops were being introduced and therefore CO2 was involved in stirring up the yeast, or if this was actually from the maltase and the hops. But still kind of interesting to, to know that, you know, you might be able to observe this on the homebrew level. You might. You might. But it's good to know. So... <laughs> Also, listener uh, Trisco on the website uh, wrote in about Rosé from episode 56 of The Brew Files, The Rosé Wave, said, After listening to this episode on the way home from work tonight, I was left with Drew's comment about Rosé IPA when pulling it in my driveway. If you remember, I, I knew somebody was going to make a Rosé IPA, but I wasn't sure how it was going to work. Um, then when turning on my home computer with Brew Public on my local web browser, uh, brewpublic.com, there was an ad for Thirsty Monk's BBR IPA, Brett Brut Rosé IPA, on top here in Portland. If only it could have been a hazy pastry Brett Brut Rose IPA then. 
Then, that would cover just about everything, huh? Yeah, if only it could have been, then Denny probably would have spontaneously combusted somewhere, you know, <laughs> in Eugene just from proximity's sake. Uh, yeah, I think that's entirely possible. So let's let's uh, be glad they didn't go a step further. Well, and it is interesting that they're doing the Brut Rosé IPA because all these rosé beers that I've seen so far, at least the ones that I've, that I've studied recently, they've all used those enzymes in them that, that you would use to make the Brut beers. So they're already kind of, Brute Rosé, and then they just go and add the IPA thing. And I'm still really curious to see what sort of hops they were using that would work in with those hibiscus flavors in particular, because that might be a little clashing, a little strange, at least the way my brain would think about it. Do we know that they used hibiscus to do that or some other method? We don't, but I'm I'm guessing hibiscus because it's the cheapest and easiest way to get it. (laughs) Red food coloring. Fair enough. Uh... Let's let's assume they were going all natural on their dye, um, but yeah, it'd be interesting to see. I I would be puzzled by it, but uh, still intrigued because that's how my brain works. Yeah, right. Well, you know, like I say, you just never know. We gotta we gotta maybe check that out. Yep. All right. I don't know about you, but standing up and doing all this talking is making me thirsty. So I need a beer. Sure, that's a great idea. We're gonna head over to the experimental brewing pub for a beer. We'll be right back, so please stick around. Are you having trouble finding enough time to homebrew and give attention to the other important things in your life? Is your newest brewed IPA experiment coming at the expense of other obligations? Don't neglect partner or pet. Brew with the Genesis Fermenter. Learn why at genesisfermenter.com and find them wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. This winter welcomes our private collection strains for the first quarter of 2019. Inspired by the Pacific Northwest's ever-changing forecast of wintry mix and available exclusively at Y-East. Our 1217 West Coast IPA, 2001 Pilsner Urkel H strain, and 2352 Munich Lager II provide balanced characteristics for styles as varied as the weather ahead. Whatever your plans may be for brewing, we hope to inspire new seasonal traditions with crisp, drinkable beers among the rich stouts and barrel-aged behemoths during these colder months. These strains are available January through March at your local homebrew shop. Find out more about which styles pair best with these strains at yeastlab.com. Welcome back. We have made our way over here to the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town, and we're having a couple beers. Drew, you go first. What are you drinking? Uh, I'm drinking a Point Conception IPA, or if we're going to be you know, properly Spanish here in California, Point Conception. Uh, there you go. From Fig Mountain, or Figueroa Mountain, but nobody calls them Figueroa Mountain. It's just Fig Mountain. And Fig Mountain's a, a little brew pub chain, or I, or I say little brew pub chain, but you know, they've grown big and they have a big production brewery now. Uh, it's a 7.2% West Coast IPA with sort of big tropical hop notes, because I think you're required to do that now, but also a really nice, big, bitter bite. So a little bit new school, a little bit old school. Kind of really like it. They're using mosaic, 
Citra, Columbus, and Denali in the beer. And it's named for the Point Concepcion uh, area near Santa Barbara because that's where Fig Mountain's from. And it's just, you know, it's kind of, it, it's a very successful bridge between everybody sort of like overloading their fruity hops into, into these IPAs, uh, but still with that old school bitterness. So really digging it. Definitely not a session beer at 7.2%, but a damn enjoyable one regardless. Depends on what you consider a session beer, doesn't it? Well, yes, but I'm going by our usual definition of session beer here, buddy. <laughs> our, our, our friend uh, Fred Bonjour considers uh, session beers to go down to about 12%. So, uh, Yes, well, but Fred's a special case. <laughs> Fred is a special case. All right, and so what are you having? I am having another old standby that I love. Well, it's not really that old. Uh, I think it's been around since about the 90s. And I'm going to, I know I'm going to dick chimp the name of the brewery. Uh, I call it Unibrew, but the beer name is La Fin du Monde. Or, you know, if you're going to speak French the way it should be, then I'm not even going to try. Yeah, but it does mean the end of the world. <laughs> it does mean the end of the world. And, uh, you know, I think that they originally named it that because it's a fairly big beer, uh, but you know, it, it's not huge. It's not undrinkably big. It's 9%. Uh, I managed to finish the entire uh, 750 milliliter bottle by myself. Four ounces it at a time? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I was not good. It is a wonderful, wonderful Belgian beer, uh, or Belgian-style beer, I should say, because it actually comes from Canada. Um, it has kind of like... There are some spice notes to it, although I don't believe that they use actually any spices in it. Uh, they say that the aroma is a floral bouquet, fresh baguette with aromas of honey, spices, coriander, malt, and alcohol. And I definitely get the honey, spices, and coriander out of it. It supposedly, it supposedly uh, uses coriander and orange peel in it, but... Yeah, and I could I could definitely see that. Uh, they say that the flavor is a mildly hoppy palate with notes of grains, fruit and spice, followed by a smooth, dry finish, a perfect balance of sugar, acidity, bitterness, spices, and alcohol. And I have to say that as much as we try and avoid that B word, this is a nicely balanced beer. Yeah, well, and I first encountered Lafendamon back, I think, just shortly after it got introduced in 94, 95. When I, yeah. when I would travel from Boston to Montreal, because uh, that's what you do when you're in college in Boston, and you want to go drink someplace fun. And <laughs> and I just remember walking into a Canadian liquor store and just seeing this beer and going, wow, that's a really big beer. i got to have that one, because my uh, my tastes were not as refined. My goals were not as refined, shall we say? Um, right. And I just uh, I remember learning that the reason they call it Le Fin de Mon is supposedly the European explorers who first got to Canada thought they had reached the end of the world. Ah, that makes more sense than my uh, explanation. Yeah, so uh, Le Fendemont, it's a classic. It's been around for years, and it's just a damn tasty beer. Yeah, and uh, if you guys want to try making something similar, their yeast is available as Y-Yeast 3864. I don't know if it's year-round. It at least pops up once in a while. But it's a real fun yeast to brew with, too. Yeah, and it's got a, it has that very distinctive unibrew plummy note that you are yeah it's it's kind of amazing it's like oh yeah that that i understand right right all right so let's go ahead and uh, let's uh, dig into some stories i think the very first thing we gotta do 
let's actually go back and visit a story that we had talked about in the last episode uh, that we recorded new, which is Anchor Brewing had announced, or, well, the Anchor Brewing employees had announced that they were going to lead a unionization effort. Now, as always happens with any sort of unionization effort in a company, there was a lot of fighting back and forth and, you know, union members can, you know, saying that management was pulling dirty tricks, management saying that the union workers pulling dirty tricks. But uh, they had the vote, and it uh, 67% of the Anchor Brewery employees voted to unionize, which means that America's oldest craft brewery is now also the largest brewery, craft brewery in the U.S. to be a union shop. So kind of interesting. We'll have to see what, uh, what that does in terms of uh, wages, in terms of employment, in terms of everything else. Because we know, I mean, the, the whole point, the reason the brewery staff was unionizing was it's pretty dang expensive to go live in San Francisco, particularly on brewer's wages. Yeah, right. There were guys who were working nearly full-time who had to work two other jobs. And it's like, if you're already working nearly full-time, there's not much time to work other jobs. Yep. So it'd be interesting to see the impact. Uh, you know, Denny and I have said before that we're both uh, generally pro-labor, uh, both of us having been union people in the past. Uh, so it'd be like I said, interesting, particularly in this uh, n- new climate that we're finding ourselves, particularly for an older brand like Anchor. You know, and uh, to lead into our next story, you said that they were the oldest craft brewery in the United States. I know, my I know. Imme- I know. My, my mind immediately went to Yingling, which I believe is about the oldest brewery in the U.S. Yeah, I know, but I still have I have problems picturing Yingling as a craft brewery. That's me. Well, the Brewers Association doesn't, because in their know. list of the t- top 50 craft breweries, Yingling comes in at number one this year. Yeah, and so this is the brand new list uh, that was uh, sent out uh, just as we're recording this. And yeah, uh, Yingling, Boston Beer, Sierra Nevada, New Belgium, and very interestingly, Duval Morgat. <laughs> yeah, really, you're kind of going, what? Mm-hmm. Those, are the, those are the top five in terms of ta- the top five uh, craft brewing companies. So... Uh, now, the truth is here on this list, the Brewers Association, uh, which said it's, you know, it represents small and independent craft breweries, releases an annual list of the top 50 producing craft brewing companies and overall brewing companies in the U.S. based on sales volume. And of the top 50 overall brewing companies, 40 were small and independent craft breweries. So it's interesting because I don't think Duval Morgott usually qualifies under the BA normal definitions for independent craft brewery yeah i I don't know and and a lot of people are gonna go wait a minute wait a minute isn't that a belgian brewery well they now have uh, breweries in california missouri and new york so no it's not exclusive namely firestone walker boulevard and oh my gang so yeah and Mm -hmm. they've had those for for a while and, and of all the bigger well bigger for a certain term but for all these sort of uh, bigger sort of brewery conglomeration type things, Duval Morgat's probably the one that, I, that I'm happiest with because they always seem to leave the beer alone and, and enable people to produce even better. Yeah, right. And we have uh, three from Oregon on the list. We have Deschutes, which is one of those great breweries that's been around forever and still making killer beer at number 10. We have Ninkasi. Finally, pulling ahead of Rogue at 35 and 36. So that's uh, that's very interesting to see Ninkasi. I know that they are one of the fastest growing breweries in the U.S. Yep. And, well, and it's interesting we did the two smallest ones on the list. So, again, top 50 of the independents are Bear Republic and Left Hand, 
and then just above them, St. Arnold. And oh, and what I love St. Arnold. Well, and I love Bear Republic. But yeah, me too. And what's funny is like I really if you'd asked me if Bear Republic was going to be in the top 50, I don't think I would have said so. But I know they've been making a lot of moves recently to sort of expand their reach. So it's great to see them uh, there, another old school brand that I've always really loved. And they treat homebrewers wonderfully. So if you ever get a chance to go to Bear Republic, you should, because they do great. And of course, St. Arnold is the same way. Left Hand, I'm actually kind of surprised Left Hand's not even higher up because of you know, their uh, milk stout that seems to be everywhere. Yeah, well, you know, that's that's only one beer. And just in the for the sake of completeness, I'll mention also that uh, Full Sail Brewing from Hood River uh, was another Oregon brewery in there at number 44. Yep, and well, Full Sail has been in the news recently because uh, a lot of people concerned about their sales rate uh, and saying that basically the session line is what's kind of keeping them open, those cool little stubby bottles. You know, and that's the one that you see most often. Yep. It's good beer, by the way. If you, if you yeah. get a chance, go have the full sale uh, session. It's a, a tasty beverage. They make it in many, many different varieties these days, but uh, I, I still like the original the best. Yep. All right. And so from top breweries, it's time to go back to old breweries. And by old breweries, boy, we mean old. I mean, <laughs> we mean old. Yeah. I mean, like, actually, uh, Denny was probably there at the opening, but still old. Well, you know, I, I wasn't quite old enough to drink at that time. Yeah. And so. Because of the upgrades in the UK to the A14, you know, so think big superhighway, um, they've been doing a lot of archaeology work because, of course, you can't throw a stone in the UK without hitting some sort of archaeological uh, find. And what I thought was really rad about this is that this is a big governmental project, and they have a big field of archaeologists working quickly to try and discover anything that might be destroyed as they're doing this expansion of the motorway. And, uh, I mean, up to 250 archaeologists working at one time, which is amazing and mind-blowing. And they, uh, this is all in Cambridgeshire, and they found signs of Iron Age brewing from about 400 BC. So it's the earliest pieces of actual physical evidence of the brewing process that they've been able to find in the UK. So not the oldest evidence that we have of brewing as a species. That, you know, we talked about that stuff in the last summer uh, coming out of Jordan and Israel. But this is really, really cool because this is the first sign that they have of actual charred grains that look like they've been milled and all that sort of stuff actually being used to make beer. Yeah, and what's interesting, too, is that they were able to distinguish the beer residue from things like bread and porridge using a scanning electron microscope. And they found like evidence of yeast in the beer residue that wasn't present in the other ones, uh, which were also made, uh, uh, bread was made of a very fine flour, beer and porridge, they use cracked grains and they're bigger. And uh, when she looked under the scanning electron microscope, they could see the starch granules uh, from the beer grains have differences that show that they were actually fermented, unlike porridge. Yeah, I'd love to read more on the science of that. But of course, uh, Roger Protz, who's been, or Protz, uh, who's been, a, well, he's been writing about beer for ever and a dang day uh, over there in the UK, very closely associated with camera. He wrote and was quoted as saying that, uh, uh, East Anglia has always been of great importance to brewing as a result of the quality of the barley that grows there. It is known as maritime barley and is prized throughout the world. When the Romans invaded Britain, you know, so that's what sometime uh, 50-ish BC? Yeah. Uh, when the Romans invaded Britain, they found the local tribes brewing a type of beer called Kermi, or C-U-R-M-I, so if I'm saying that wrong, I probably am. 
And uh, it said that the beer was believed to have been made from grain as hops did not come into use in Britain until the 15th century with hops uh, with herbs and spices to balance the sweetness of the malt. So just grain, herbs, and spices. Now I want to know what's in that ancient beer. <laughs> you would, wouldn't you? I uh, would, because it's barley and oats as a start, and we're still using yeah, those today. That's right, man. Nope, it's off to a good start. I don't see any indication that they use pastry in it. And no pastry and uh, no word on whether or not it was hazy. <laughs> I bet it was. Well, it was probably thick. <laughs> yeah. People have this uh, romantic idea of what ancient beer was like. Uh, I don't. I have to admit that I don't uh, really share that. I kind of think that ancient beer was something that we probably wouldn't want to drink these days. But back then, it was safer than water, and hey, it had alcohol in it. So, you know, that's that's why they drank it, not because they were going, "Oh, what a delicious beverage this is." Well, that's like just your opinion, man. And that is exactly what it is. All right, I think it's time to actually go and brew some beer. We're going to take a quick break here and head over to the brewery. Talk about some weird new product that Drew just got. So stick around and we'll be right back. Explore the history of tart, fruity, and refreshing Goza-style beer with the latest book from Brewer's Publication, Goza, Brewing a Classic German Beer for the Modern Era. Written by award-winning veteran brewer Fal Allen, Goza includes 27 recipes, including Sea Quench Sour from Dogfish Head Craft Brewery and Ruben Brewer's 2017 Great American Beer Festival gold medal-winning Goza. Right now, Brewer's Publications is giving experimental homebrewing listeners a discount on Goza. Go to brewerspublications.com and use code EXPERIMENTAL to take 20% off Goza. That's right, you'll save 20% when you use code EXPERIMENTAL at brewerspublications.com. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. We're back, and we're over here in the brewery, and we're going to be talking about some hop news that we've been working on, and then we're going to talk to one of our listeners and taste a beer. So the first thing is, Drew got some hops in a can, wet hops in a can. I'm willing to bet that nobody else out there has ever dealt with this. Yeah, well, so first off, I do want to make a special note about today's episode. Uh, I am not in my usual studio for recording this. I am actually in my brewery. Ooh, I'm cool. Move the podcast studio out to the brewery. So right here to my uh, left is my last beer. It's burbling away. So you may hear this in the background. If not, oh, well, it smells wonderful. 
<laughs> but yeah, so I order around from different suppliers based on different needs, and we're good friends with the folks over at Texas Brewing Inc. Uh, over there in Fort Worth, the Dallas area. And I ordered some parts from them, and every once in a while when I order, they kind of throw something weird into the mix. And so I got my order from them, and I opened up the box, and it seemed heavier than I was expecting. And sure enough, I pulled out of the, the box this 300-gram bronze-looking can with a pull top. And on the side of it, it said special wet hops. And so I went and I did some research on this. <laughs> there is a German grower of hops out there who has decided that what he wants to do is embrace the wet hop trend. Now, of course, the problem is wet hops. You know, the way our hops are usually processed, you know, they come off the vine and they're dried almost immediately. You know, to remove as much of the moisture as they can, because if you leave the moisture in hops, they rot and they rot quickly, matter of days. So wet hops, you know, that's the reason why you only see those wet hop beers during that brief period of time every year. What he decided was that, you know, from his small little hop farm was that, well, you take a look at how hops get processed. And there's a whole paper in uh, Browalt about this, how hops normally get processed. You know, he's talking about like, you know, there's all these volatile oils that they're getting blown off. So even before the hops you know, reach the brewery where we can do damage to those volatile oils. They're being damaged in the, in the drying process. So as a experiment and as a new ingredient, he's experimented with actually canning and heat bagging wet hops. And so you can buy these cans. Uh, and I don't know, I don't think they're available to home brewers just yet. Uh, Stubby and company over at Texas brewing started bringing them in for commercial breweries and no word yet as to whether or not there'll be homebrew uh, size levels of these. But just really interesting, a nice, big, heavy, dense can that when you pop it open is filled with wet hops that are effectively heat treated to stop any of the rotting process and make an aseptic environment inside. And then you pull them out and you've got a very short window because now they're back to being wet hops to go and use. And the idea is that they are supposed to be you know, basically full on, ready to go hops with all of the all the hop oil and none of the, the damage done to them by the drying philosophy. And, you know, they, they, they of course claim things that, you know, Hey, it gives the beer a pleasant round of bitterness. Uh, it gives that kind of green hop aroma to it and that all the aromatic oils are still in the beer. And so they're kind of effectively whole hops. And when you go and you pop up in the can, it looks a little bit like somebody took whole hops and kind of mashed them up a little bit and made them look a little bit more pasty. But when you smell them, it's, you know, full of all that chlorophyll and all the fresh hop aromas that you'd expect from a beer. So the idea behind these is you can now have a wet hop beer year round and it's still a really new product, but they have uh, Hercules, Mandarin Bavaria, Pearl, Polaris, Spalter Select, and interestingly enough to me from a German hop grower, Cascade. <laughs> yeah, man, it's like I know that there are a lot more American style hops being grown over there. So uh. yeah, it, to me, it's just interesting. It's it, it's a yet another hop technique. And again, you know, for those of us who, who kind of look at this, you know, sometimes you wonder we're pouring all this innovation into the, into the world of hops. Uh, are we doing the same thing with uh, malt? I know we're doing some of it with yeast, but uh, so far it seems like we're all hop all the time. <laughs> I just I find it totally fascinating that somebody thought to uh, can wet hops yeah, and and heat bag them. It's it's bizarre. So I, I'm looking forward to using these. I have a a saison that I'm doing right now that will probably get these as a dry hop, a dry wet hop, a a, a, a drip. <laughs> 
Yeah, uh, how, let me see. How do we do that? A, 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 a secondary hopping of wet hops. There we go. That's what it's going to be. So I, I suspect that's where I'm going to be using these. But again, this can that uh, TBI sent me, 300 grams. So that's a lot of hops. <laughs> yeah, really, man. Uh, it's really cool. I'm, I'm going to be interested to see how they work out. Yeah. From one novel form of hop processing to another novel form of hop processing. Denny, talk to me, buddy. Well, we have been uh, playing with some American Noble hops pellets from uh, Yakima Chief up in Yakima, where else? And, you know, we've talked about cryo hops before, where they, they freeze the hops with liquid nitrogen and separate out the lupulin glands, and that's what cryo hops are. But then the vegetal matter that's left become the American Noble hops pellets. And before you break your brain trying to figure out what American Nobles are, I'll tell you that basically they are all American varieties, but with the lupulin removed, they have a lot of the characteristics of uh, continental noble hops. You know, they're, they're not real forward in terms of bittering. Uh, they do retain a bit of their aroma. Uh, it, it's a very, very interesting product. They're, they're going to be available probably by this fall on the homebrew market, so you can check them out yourself. Uh, they're a key component to my American mild uh, recipe that I made. And what I find interesting is that because there's so much vegetal matter in these, I mean, that's pretty much what they all are, the the tannins in the hops actually play a role in bittering your beer and giving it some character. And this is not the kind of tannins that you try to avoid that give you that uh, that harsh, dry finish. They, I mean, it's really hard to describe. What I've noticed especially is that after a couple weeks of aging, the tannins kind of tend to drop out of the beer to a certain degree, and you get a really nice rounded flavor, hints of aroma. Uh, besides the American Mild, I've got a nice multi lager in the fermenter right now that used them. I think these things show a lot of promise but they really do require some experimentation to try and figure out the best way to use them. Yeah, and of course, I've used them in my cream ale and Saison, and we've talked about them here on the podcast before, but I think the big news that should be out to everybody is fall. Pay attention for fall. Yeah, that's right. That's that's when you'll have a chance to get your hands on some and try them yourself and see what you think. Of course, you know where else you can probably get your hands on some before fall? Where? HomebrewCon in Providence, Rhode Island. Oh, that's right. I think that they had samples that they were giving away last year, and I'm sure that they will again. Yeah, so I think one of the things I'm going to do is, uh, uh, thanks to the last episode of The Brew Files, I'm going to make a Meritson here before too long, uh, probably this weekend. And I think I'll probably actually go ahead and throw some of those uh, American Nobles in there, just to give it a different twist. <laughs> that would be great, man. Yeah. Ameritson with American Attitude. So I think uh, I think it's time for us to taste some beer. Tasting beer sounds good to me, so let's go to the phones. We are here today with Mr. Chris Wilburn, who uh, sent us a couple beers. He sent us a version of my Little Ripa, kind of a scaled-down version of my Rye IPA recipe that he brewed. And the original intent was to compare it to a, a version of it that came off the Pico Sea. But uh, things happened, and that's not going to be exactly what we're doing. So we'll just start off by saying, hey, Chris, how are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Oh, man, thank you for hanging in there with us while we got this together. It's not a so, problem. Uh, tell, us, tell us a little bit about your brewing. How long have you been brewing? When did you get started? All that kind of stuff. 
so I started in the, around 2006, 2007. Uh, I'm a career, career Air Force. Uh, I was stationed in Colorado Springs. And one day decided I'd uh, walk into a homebrew store and then walked out with about $200 worth of equipment. And that's what <laughs> got me started. Um, and uh, I've taken a few breaks here and there. The Air Force stopped it to uh, ship me off to England. And I uh, decided that wasn't the best idea to take all my equipment with me because we limited space, limited weight allowances. And so it took a bit about three years there, hiatus, and then probably didn't get started again in Dayton, Ohio now. And uh, I probably took about a year, year and a half till I really got back into it again after we got back to the state. So what's your brew system like? Uh, well, uh, I initially started out on propane, uh, probably like just everybody else, but uh, I wanted to move to electric. I wanted to get indoors, and uh, I was lucky enough to uh, be on Craigslist and checking out what people were selling, and I happened upon an individual who was selling a uh, Blitzman Brew Easy 240-volt uh, electric system uh, for about half of what it was worth. Um, wow, and good only, find, man. Yeah, yeah, he only brewed on it 12 times, so uh, I was like, oh, that, yeah, I'll take that. Thank you very much. Yeah, the the lesson here is pay attention to your online classifieds. Yeah, never know what you're going to find. Yeah, absolutely. It was uh, I was actually at work when I found it, so. Uh, <laughs> well, that's better than working any day, huh? <laughs> I was on a doing some stuff at a, at a facility and walked outside and just happened to check my check on my phone what was on Craigslist. So um, you brewed this uh, this little Ripa, and uh, your friend brewed one on the Pico C from the kit there. And originally, yeah. and originally we were going to compare the two versions, and who knows, we may still get to that. But you were telling us that after you started bottling your version, you noticed something about it. Yeah, so when I first kegged it, no problem. Uh, tasted great. Uh I was just waited a couple days to uh, get the uh, CO2 up before sending it out to you guys. And uh, tasted it again. Uh, a couple days later, it was carved up. Uh, a couple days later, I went to go bottle it, uh, bottled it up for you guys, put it in the uh, put it in the mail to get it to you. And later that night after I mailed it, uh, I had... Uh, glass of it, and it had drastically changed. The uh, flavor was completely different. In what way? Uh, it was muted. Um, I didn't. I, I don't trust that I have a very strong palate, so I can't tell if there's off flavors or not. I haven't been trained. I'm not a judge or anything like that. Um, and we drank the keg uh, without. It was still drinkable. It just. It was extremely muted. Uh, the hop was gone the the i don't know how to explain i kind of tasted almost watered down is that how i would kind of explain it and and did this all happen over the course of a few hours that's kind of what it sounded like i think it was a couple days because i tasted it and then it was a couple days later that i went to the bottle it i didn't taste it again before i bottled it because i just figured it was still fine i mean i don't typically have years go bad in the kegerator uh so I bottled it up and sent it to you guys, and then that's when later that night, after I ran to uh, put it in the mail, I came back and I had a glass, and I was like, "Oh no!" So oh, did that's you have? Right. 
did you have any of the keg left to compare it to? Um, no, I didn't have any. I, well, I had some bottles that I was uh, uh, going to send off to another competition, uh-huh. um, and those bottles were fine. Hmm. Wow. Um, and then I had, uh, but the, coming out of the keg, it was completely different. Oh, right. So it, so the taste had even changed in the keg. It wasn't just the yeah. bottles. Yeah. Wow. Interesting, interesting. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Those bottles, those bottles I actually bottled off the fermenter, not the keg. Oh, okay. The bottles I sent to you guys, I bottled off the keg. Sorry. Yeah, screw that. And, and the, ones, uh, the ones for the competition, you bottled right from the fermenter, huh? Right. Okay, so it's something that happened going into the keg. So what do you think, Drew? Time to uh, time to get into some analysis here and try this beer? Yeah, I think we should do the do. But, uh, Chris, can, do you have the details on the recipe in front of you? Oh, yep, sure do. Yeah, why don't you go ahead and, uh, and read those out. Okay, so, um, I, uh, so I start with uh, our water. Um, I acidified the water with lactic acid to get it up to 5.4 pH. Um, and the malt bill was uh, nine and a half pounds of two row, uh, two, two pounds, 10 ounces of rye malt, one pound, two ounces of crystal 60, uh, 14 ounces of wheat and, uh, seven ounces of carapil. And then, uh, first, first wort hop addition of point nine ounces of Mount Hood. Um, the 60 minute addition of point seven ounces of Tomahawk. Uh, 30 minute addition of quarter ounce of Mount Hood. Uh, I did use a Wolfock tablet and 1.4 ounces of Mount Hood uh, at the basically uh, flame out. And, then, and I did add a teaspoon of gypsum to the boil. Right. And then you dry hopped with uh, Columbus? Yes. Okay, great. Um, you know, I see exactly what you're talking about. The beer doesn't suck. It's just that there's not much there, is there? Yeah, kind of. It's a little lackluster, like yeah, muted. It, yeah, it was really bright and flavorful when I initially kegged it. So how long had it been in the keg before you noticed this? Um, I'd say a week to 10 days. Okay. So plenty of time for something to go there. Um, do you take any specific precautions against oxidation when you keg? I mean, do you do the purge or anything like that? Yeah. So I, uh, my, my normal routine is to, uh, fill the, fill the keg with sanitizer, uh, push it out with CO2 and then transfer from my, so I have a, um, spike, uh, conical fermenter mm-hmm. and, uh, SS brew tech brew bucket. I don't remember which one I used. I want to say it was the conical. Um, and I push it with CO2 into the keg. Right. Right. So, and everything tasted great at that point, right? Yeah. Wow. Okay, Drew, what do you think? Um, Trying to trying to get puzzled. So, all right, we we've got it into the keg, and then ten days later is when you is when you notice the change, and we have yeah, a fully about- purged. Okay, and we have a fully purged keg. Um, was there any change in the carbonation level uh, between those ten days? Did you notice? 
I don't, I don't think, I don't remember noticing a change. Okay, and, I mean, and you did getting getting better. I mean, getting strong because I put it on. I set I set and forget, you know. I put it at right. at the you know, and I didn't do you know. Uh, I didn't shake it. I didn't first carve it. I just let it sit in there and carve out. Chris, you're not making this easy, man. <laughs> well, I'm not trying to make it hard. I, I, I honestly, I, so the, the funny thing is, is, this happened to me one other time with another IPA. Oh, uh, interesting. It, it was a uh, Union Jack uh, from, I don't want to say clone, uh, but Union Jack clone out of BYO uh, magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was good for like a week or two, and then it just started to change again. Hmm. I, I just, I, I don't have any idea what's, uh, what's going on. Well, well, given my experience with Union Jack as a beer, and I'd almost put that into the into that context. I always liked Union Jack when it was under a month old. After that, it, it disappeared. <laughs> yeah, but, um. but I mean, I'm thinking, okay, so maybe maybe the mash got oxidized or something, but that doesn't really make any sense. Well, it doesn't, well I guess no, it, it doesn't explain the bottles in the fermenter. Except that maybe were the bottles from the fermenter around as long as this beer was? Yeah. Oh, come on. <laughs> Well, and the bottles from uh, the fermenter were bottle conditioned, so they would have had yeast right. effect in there. Right. And have you sent them off to the competition yet? Have you gotten any any results from it? No, I decided not to send them when I uh, tasted what was coming out of the keg. I opened them and tasted one, and I was and I didn't have any more to send because I just, I set off the, the two. Basically, sure. it was the end of the fermenter. I still had some beer left. And I was like, oh well, I'll send these to the competition and uh, bottled with that. And and the one that you tasted that was going to the competition originally tasted fine, right? Didn't taste like these do. No, no, it tasted just like the pig initially tasted. Hmm. Oh man. Yeah. So I'm 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 completely baffled. Well, okay. So, and we said that the impact happened to the rest of the keg, which rules out the packaging, right? So, basic uh, debugging theory one hundred and one for anybody who's not a computer programmer or a process programmer. Yeah, start at the latest end of the things where things have changed and you can eliminate everything forward of that. So because we know it was in the keg, we can, you know, the samples that you pulled from the keg later had the same problem. We know it's not in the uh, the packaging. Although, to be fair, Denny, you said that a couple of the bottles get, that got sent to you uh, leaked, right? Yeah, they did just a little bit, but apparently uh, the beer had already changed by that point. Right. And to tell you the truth, I'm not noticing any of the the really bad oxidation qualities, mm-hmm. you know, like the wet cardboard, the the weird caramel flavors no. or anything like that. Yeah, the hops it's are, just that the flavor's kind of muted. Yeah, the hops are dulled. Um, I am getting actually a little diacetyl, but I'm also kind of sensitive to diacetyl, so... Um, yeah. Oh, you know, now that you mentioned it, there it is, kind of like on, on the roof of my mouth, I can get it. Yeah. So we clearly, at least to my mind, we clearly have some sort of oxidation process happening. And it's somewhere in that keg. somewhere, Or I should say somewhere between the transfer between the fermenter and the keg. So let's think about that. You said, okay, you're coming out of either a brew bucket or a conical, uh, I'm assuming CO2 power tra- uh, transfer. Okay, so CO2 power transfer into a CO2 purged keg, a full purge, which is what we usually advocate. Yep. Turbulence in the line at the interface. And that's the only other thing I can think of is, is that you have some sort of 
uh, oxygen ingress either coming out of the out of the fermenter or uh, into the keg because I'm guessing a hose into a QD and then drop down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Right. So in the in the into the out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Yep, yep. Yeah, and and for listeners, you go in the out when you're doing this sort of transfer because you want the dip tube to carry the liquid all the way down to the bottom of the keg so you don't do splashing. Even even in a CO two purged environment, it's better to treat the beer gently. So yeah, the only the only thing I could think of is when you know in order to get the the get it flowing, you have to purge the CO two out of the keg, right? Um, mm-hmm. So I, I did have a um, um, a gas QD on the gas post. To push the air out as the yeah, but, but you, I mean, maybe but some oxygen got pulled in that way. I don't know. Maybe, but the, I mean, you're inducing positive pressure, so even even with gas mixing, you're not going to see that much ingress that way. Huh. I I would I would have to guess not having watched what what you did just from the descriptions right. of it that you you had some sort of oxygen pickup in that transfer, and to me, the the most likely place for that is either on the host side at the fermenter or the host side at the keg. Because that's the only yeah, thing that makes any sense. Maybe a loose fitting, uh, you know? Yeah, maybe I didn't tighten the, the swivel nut down enough and mm-hmm. it was able to pull some oxygen in with it. I, I, I suppose, I mean, I can't think of anything else, although then you would think that you would see beer leaking also. Well, and then you've yeah, also got the, no, not necessarily, actually. I mean, I've I've done plenty of transfers before where I've noticed that I start to build up bubbles at an mm-hmm. interface. I don't get any liquid liquid. It's just it's bubbles because the the space is very very small. So the the other thought is, of course, you know maybe the keg poppet or the keg post or something was a little mm. loose. I mean yeah, that's that's, that's awesome. another that's another yeah. interface where that can go wrong. That's what I was thinking. I mean the other thing I mean that I've been noted to do is I always take my uh, quick disconnects apart to clean them uh, after I use them. And once or twice, I haven't gotten the cap back on as tightly as I should have. Mm-hmm. But again, in that case, I see beer leakage, yeah. you know? so Well, in that same line of thought, I would also check the O-ring on that, on that out tube. You know, check the, on the oh, post. Yeah. Because I can imagine if there's a, just even a little ding in that O-ring, you could possibly get you know, oxygen entrained into the beard going down. So that's another thought. Okay. Yeah, and of course, there's no way of knowing if that would be enough oxygen to cause this, but we're really grasping at straws here. Man. Well, and and the problem, of course, is that, I mean, you know, again, with this case that you've sent us, it's not, I mean, it's not indicative of massive oxygen introduction. It's No. It's indicative of like, yeah, something just kind of went wrong, which is the reason why I think, you either got some gas ingress at the uh, the interfaces between the the keg and the carb or the fermenter, or some oxygen getting entrained and pulled down the dip tube because of the beer flowing through the keg post. Um, yeah, that is weird, but that, that is all I can think of. So now, Denny, I don't know. Do, should we pull out the the other uh, version to see if if that's reading brighter in these bottles? Cause it, well, ex- except that you know, Chris didn't brew the other version or transfer it, uh, so there's really. But Chris, did you bottle it? No, he he did it all. But I'd love okay. to guess, right? And, and he he has a very sensitive palate, and he said he was picking up some green apple uh, in it. And so, if you guys want to try it, I'd be you know appreciative. 
Okay. All right, here we go. Let's do this. So again, for the listeners. We're always ready for another beer. Yeah. Again, for the listeners, this is the same recipe, but brewed on a Pico C, which is the very small Pico unit. And uh, I'm drinking with you. All right. Cheers, man. That's the best sort of podcast. <laughs> yeah, I saved it uh, for when we would be talking. So. Oh, yeah, this one definitely has more hop aroma to it. Well, the very first thing I know, yeah, this one's also throwing a much bigger head. And uh, the glass I put it into yep. has little nucleation sites on the bottom. And it is pushing up a stream, a steady stream of bubbles. Mm-hmm. So. Now, see, to me, this one seems a little less carbonated. but Well, I suspect that might be because of the difference in your in your uh, bottles. And by the way, I'm also looking the version that, uh, that Chris, that you gave us is actually a bit paler than the, the version that I've got here in the Pico C. So, yeah. And that could, that could just be a, a case of the particular grain oh, yeah. that, uh, the um, Pico brew is using to make the kit. Yeah. I, I wouldn't even say that this tastes like the one that I brewed. This one is a lot more, I think there's more caramel flavor to this. Than exactly the one that, what I was going to say, too. the one that I brewed. It well, and that would make sense with the color difference. It didn't have yeah. that caramel flavor to it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and and that could that could be from oxidate, oxidation in the, uh, the Pico version, too. Hmm. Yeah, I'm going to say... Overall, okay, so adjusting mentally for the the breakdown of the hot material in the in the version that you brewed versus the one that we get out of the Pico C. I mean, they're both, you know, drinkable beers. I, I would say I don't think either of them really come into line with you know what I've had from Denny for the, the Rye IPA or the Little Ripa. Um like the the Pico version has I think again driven by the the level of carbonation, at least in my sample. You know, there's a little bit more of a bite in the back end, but it's more of an acid bite than a bitter bite, um, which would play into the the green apple acetaldehyde uh, observation. And I'm not I'm not getting much of that actually. No, but at the same time, I'm also not getting the sort of big hop aroma I'd expect, you know, from yours. Yeah, right. Well, you know, and again, that could be uh, down to the particular ingredients that they use to make that uh, pico pack. Mm-hmm. I mean, here's the thing: oh, it's, you- it's still, I mean, it's still a wonderfully drinkable beer. Uh, uh-huh. It does feel more lively on the palate, I think, largely due to carbonation. The sample yeah. that the sample that I poured from your bottle was less carbonated, but I don't know. Um, hmm. Yeah, you can at least tell they're supposed to be the same beer. In theory, uh, it, it, even if not the same beer, at least uh, cousins. Yeah, right. So, hmm. but man, Chris, I'm sorry that we just don't have a clue as to giving you advice about what you might have done with yours to avoid next. Oh no, time. I think I think we do have a clue. We I think I think the clue is you got to look at that transfer. It's the only the only place I can think that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. Nothing. Nothing else makes sense, even though we didn't see any real red flags there. Yeah. So yeah, I would pay. I I would try the do this again. I would pay attention to the transfer step just to really watch me you know, make sure that keg post is down. Uh, if you, ha- uh, I don't know how many kegs you have, but I would probably uh, go and mark the keg that you had the little rip in. Yeah. Too late now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean. 
I mean, maybe the next time uh, it's empty, too, uh, you know, pressurize it, spray some soap around it to make sure there aren't any leaks. Yeah. Yep. I, I, man, I just, beyond that, I don't know what to say to you. <laughs> other than other than the fact that I'm going to finish this bottle as soon as we get off this phone call and sit back and enjoy it. Oh, I, <laughs> and again, I, I mean, the beer itself, I mean, you can tell it's a well-brewed beer. It's just yeah. that something has killed off all that hop, you know, and and then you get that little diastole character, which is also the reason why I think there's some oxygen going on in here. Um, do you ha- do you happen to use a clear tube for the transfers, Chris? Yeah, it's what uh, okay. it's what they uh, it's the spike spike uh, transfer kit. Okay, so you could see if there were any bubbles in the tubing or anything. Yeah, I can. I I mean, I wasn't paying that close attention. Normally, I'll sure. I'll set it up and I'll just kind of you know pedal around yep. doing other things while it's going. So I don't pay that close yeah. attention. What? What, how dare you multitask in a brewery? I know. <laughs> I'm usually cleaning. That's what I was doing when you guys called. I was cleaning the Sprite comic book. Yep. So, <laughs> oh, I, man, I'm impressed. I just got uh, dry Irish stout. Just in time. Yeah, really. That's right. really. So, yeah, I would, uh, I would check that transfer, and if you can figure out which keg it was, Pay attention to that keg. I would definitely look at the O rings. I would watch the post. Okay. And then, and then, yeah, maybe, maybe try and just do a pressurized transfer without any beer. You know, just do it with like water, and see uh-huh. or sanit or sanitizer, and see if paying close attention to both the input and the terminus, and see if you can actually uh, find anything that looks suspicious. That's the only thing I can think of. However, I'm going to guess that somewhere out there in podcast land. One of our listeners is a smarty pants and is going to go, but you guys forgot about this. So if yeah. we forgot about something, just email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Help us help Chris. <laughs> help us help ourselves, man. We're stumped. Yeah. No, I appreciate it. And yeah, I'd appreciate any, any feedback input from the listeners. Um, well, if we hear from a man, we will definitely pass it along to you. I appreciate it. And I will brew this again, and I will send you a, a better version, I promise. Well, I don't think we're going to refuse. I was going to say, we always love to have uh, beer come our way. And speaking of which, if you have beers that you want us to taste and you know tell us what we think, again, podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Let us know. Yeah, that's right. We will always accept beer. Hey, Chris, thank you so much for sending us this beer, for taking the time to talk to us. We'll be looking forward to the next batch, and have a great weekend, man. All right. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. Thank you. We'll talk to you later. Mm -hmm. That was uh, an interesting conversation with Chris and an experience. (laughs) We're going to be back right after these messages from some of our sponsors. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mecca Grade. For more information, please visit MeccaGrade.com. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add Whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. 
Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. now and drew could probably use a little lounging because he had a big brew day last weekend uh fill us in yeah so for listeners you'll know i've talked about brew of the falcon in the past that's basically uh senior members of the club have open brew days where the public can come by and stop in and you know learn about brewing it's kind of like you know how to learn how to homebrew day but you know run by the club for other club members because I really consider it important that you get a chance to go see how other people brew at home because everybody does it slightly differently and everybody has good points and bad points and things that you can learn. So I invited people over to come over to my house and brew. We had a small crew here and we put together – I scaled it back a little bit this year because I decided I didn't want to go too insane. But we put together a batch of beer that is in the fermenters right now, right right beside me. I've got a a – Quake uh, strain, a uh, little bit of hoppy beer over here in my uh, fermenter. I uh, did a Saison with a couple different uh, yeasts and then also a, a hazy IPA with South Amer- African hops. And after we were done brewing and got everything kind of wrapped up and put away, well, we sat down and waited for pizza and did what you, know, you do when you're waiting for pizza. And then as we drank a lot more beer than we'd had already today and well, chatted about what we did. So now you get to hear. So let's uh, move over here to Drew's Brewery and listen to some of the people who were at the Brew with the Falcon Day talking about what they did and what they learned from it. All right, so uh, we are uh, we are currently drinking a little bit of uh, well, the late night session beer, I think, yeah. a little Iron Triangle uh, Dark, a nice little a nice little dark lager here. So why don't we go around the table real quick and uh, introduce ourselves, starting with you, sir. Uh, my name is Quinn, and I've been a home brewer for five years. My name is Elon, and I'm an alcoholic, also a home brewer for about three years now. Awesome. Uh, my name is Derek, and uh, I, I guess I was there the first day Drew brewed, and I've been a, I was a pro brewer for a while, and uh, yeah. Yeah, actually, you're the one who, uh, if I remember correctly, the the initial discussion was, hey, we're going to... I want to do this homebrewing thing, and you're like, okay, and then, uh, we'll split the cost, right? We'll, we'll, we'll share the cost on the <laughs> <Yeah>. beer, <laughs> and that quickly went out the window. Yeah, well, I didn't realize you were going to be brewing like three times a week uh, in short order there, so uh, yeah, I didn't realize the, ex- the expense that I was uh, signing on for at the time. It's, it's part of it. Yep. There we are. Right. And last but not least. Hi, I'm Ed. I am the vice president of the oldest homebrew club in America, the Maltos Falcons, and I've been homebrewing for now 10 years. I've it's known a, Drew for 10 years. Amazing. It, it, well, no, you've known me for longer than that because you used to come to the BJ's tastings. Oh, that's right. Yeah, back in the day when I actually brewed there. Yeah, so we used to we used to show up at beer nights and you'd be over on one table. I was on uh, over on the other table and then there was always that crosstalk and chatter. I had a girlfriend back then. It was uh, kind of nice to go there. And <laughs> yeah. All right, so just to set the stage, it, it is, well, it is now uh, 6.30 at night. We have been busy. Haven't we, gentlemen? We've been brewing. Yeah. Yes, we have. So, in the past, we've done some things where Denny's interviewed me from this, but this is the annual Brew with the Falcon uh, 
event that we do. And so in the club, in the Maltos Falcons, what we do is um, senior members of the club or older brewers or veteran brewers or people who are just interested in doing it because why the hell not? They invite people to come over to their houses. I think so far today we've had about 10 people here at my house and we've been we've been brewing. And to me, it's fun to do because I mean, we can do club brews. We can have everybody bring their systems into the parking lot at the next to the shop. But that's that kind of misses something about homebrewing, right? The second you take the homebrewing out of the home, you miss out on all the stupid things that you get to see, right? You know, like me running around going, "Wait, where did I put that thing?" <laughs> yeah, that doesn't happen when you're you know on the road. So oh, Drew, forgetting to turn off the valve that the wart's filling on the goddamn floor with. <laughs> All right, that was once, and and, and a couple liters at least. All right, well, that was once going into the conical, and that was ironically after I had made sure to tell everybody earlier in the day when I was about to put the the line into the boil kettle. Hey, by the way, really good idea is make sure you check your valves before you start flowing liquid into anything. Because look, the boil kettle, this would have just spilled out everywhere. And then, of course, later the universe decided to bite me in the butt. So, but. Let's just uh, talk about what we did today. We brewed, actually, we, we stepped down the, the the brew day a little bit because we wanted to have a little bit more relaxing. So we did two batches of beer. We did a Saison that, 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 we're, that we split uh, two ways. Originally, we were going to split it three ways, but I decided that we just to split it two ways. One of which, for our Australian listeners, is getting hot-packed right now. It's in a jerry can. Uh, cooling down overnight, and tomorrow we'll get pitched with just White Labs Belgian Saison 1. And the other strain, uh, or the other piece, got pitched into a brand new conical that I have with a heating element, and it's going to get one of those uh, quake strains in it, you know, one of those Norwegian farmhouse strains. And the idea is to not only see, like, okay, how does the Belgian Saison strain do in a hot pack situation, but also how does this quake strain do? You know, is this all this vaunted stuff that it's out there to be? Now, had, had any of you guys heard about the the quake strains before? No, this is brand new to me. No. See, and this is part of a good reason to do this because it's a learning experience. Now, also on the hot pack front, had you guys heard about that before, the no chilling? We heard about it because you talked about it at the Homebrew Club meeting. I have heard about it, but I've uh, never been brave enough to actually try it. I was always afraid to get the plastic into the into the beer. Well, that's the reason why you get the heat-proof HDTP uh, canisters. Yeah, Breaking Bad, this thing. Exactly. Now, the thing is, I mean, to me, I'll be curious to see. We put only an ounce and a half of Magnum in that batch, so you know it's a nice, substantial bittering charge. But it's only a bittering charge, nothing else. And one of the big concerns about you know doing this sort of hot work packing thing is you continue to isomerize for a good long while. You know, so how much more bitter is this going to be? Or, you know, like what happens to all the hop aromas? That's another thing. You look at like a lot of the stuff that comes out of Australia with these guys doing this thing. They do a lot of dry hopping for the beers that they want to have a really hoppy presence. So fortunately, Saison doesn't need a hoppy presence. It's a good starter thing. And of course, I'm going to go do an IPA or something like that in the future here just because you have to. Uh, the other batch of beer that we did, other than the the saison slash Norwegian farmhousey thing, is we did a, a, a hazy New England style IPA because you kind of have to. But we did a twist on it, where it was a UK based malt bill, and then an almost exclusively South African hop bill. 
So we got some warrior in there for bittering. Or actually, sorry, on the on the mash we've got Maris Otter, Multidotes, and Golden Naked Oats. And then in the the hot bill we've got Warrior for bittering, and then we have uh, South African Queen. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. Southern Af- Promise and African Queen. No, African uh, so, uh, Queen. Southern Passion. Passion. Southern Passion and African Queen. That was as it. a yeah as a whirlpool edition, and then there'll be some more going in uh, when we get to the uh, dry hop. All right, so uh, South African hops. Have any of you guys had any of the South African hops before? No. No, I have not. I haven't either. No, I think these are the fabled ones that SAB Miller slash ABI after the merger was denying to the rest of the world, but Yakima Valley hops uh, came through with these. So I'll be really, really curious to see what these taste like. Um, now, we played with some toys today because I have toys. What was, uh, what was your guys' favorite uh, toys? I, I probably the grandfather. Yeah, I would definitely agree. The uh, playing through with the app on the grandfather was pretty cool, and just uh, watching that process automate itself in a way that's still a little more hands on than a than a Pico brew. Well, because you own a you own a Pico. Yes, I have a Pico C, but uh, the grandfather allows for a little more hands on. I thought that was very cool and still somewhat automated. Eddie. Well, I enjoyed the Pico brew too because it um, it actually showed you uh, some. You really mean the grandfather. Yeah, the yeah, the grandfather, not the Pico Road. That's the beer talking. Uh, no, the grandfather is kind of very interesting because it's uh, it's um it's yeah. <laughs> it's uh you can see a whole bunch of stuff in one little package and it does everything for you uh, except heat the water fast, but that's uh, well that, that's thanks to our lousy uh, voltage level. Yeah, but I really liked it because it's uh, very convenient and uh, does everything you need in a small package. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I, I just arrived at the end of the day, so I didn't see a whole lot of it. But uh, the grandfather was very impressive. Um, just kind of like the one-stop deal. It does it all. It's kind of automated. Um, just like Drew. Yeah, there you go. Right. I'm, I'm a one-stop man. Well, now, let's talk. Uh, so, you know, there are other lessons that we could learn. There are other things that we could do. But And I've done this before, and I love doing this. So let's just uh, go around the table real quick. What do you think is good about a brew session like this where, I mean, again, we had 10 people here today, including kids running around, right. and thankfully no kids got injured in the in the making of the beer. Well, minor scrapes. Well, yeah. personally, I think the best thing about days like this is just kind of uh, the ability to share brew knowledge, because we might be able to brew together for a couple years, but uh, just doing it our own way, we'll never be able to pick up on uh, things and tips and tricks that you've picked up on uh, through your experience or Ed or anyone else and it's always good just to kind of be able to share that knowledge in a hands-on way the uh um, days like this uh really lets me learn how uh other brewers tackle the same challenges that i face in brewing and see how everybody does it differently and what i do better than they do and what they do better than i do and so i can make a uh a, (laughs) a better process overall and uh um be the best brewer i can be yeah, I think it's a great learning experience for for a lot of people, and uh, it's, it's a great opportunity to share knowledge. But in addition, I'm, I'm a I'm a big believer in the whole idea of um, energy in and energy out, and you know, sense of camaraderie and having a good time and having the kids run around and stuff. It's it's a lot of fun. It puts a lot of good energy in the day. Well, it was really interesting to see new technology that I haven't seen before. The uh, grandfather system up and running and doing its thing. And you learn tricks from people, little tips and tricks. Like uh, Drew showed us this little trick with his uh, his hot box to to melt some sugar. Uh, it was kind of cool. <laughs> it's it was very very simple thing, but it's kind of neat. 
Also, yeah. the uh, the way you deal with the chlorine was very cool. Uh, Drew had a trick with dealing with the uh, chlorinated water here in LA, which I thought was very cool. Um, what was it? Uh, the oh, potassium metabisulfate. Yeah, adding potassium metabisulfite slash Campton to the water to deal with the chloramine and drive it out. I've yeah, talked, I, uh, talked about that on the podcast before, but it's super handy if you've never seen it. Yeah, I would have never known. So some of the things that you know, you you go to a, a little brew session like this, you'll see people doing stuff you haven't seen before, and they have equipment you don't, you haven't seen before used. So it's kind of neat. I've been going to Ralph's to get my water, um, RO water, and uh, <laughs> just seeing how much simpler it was just to fill up uh, with a hose and just drop some uh, um, a metabisulfate in there was, uh, I feel pretty stupid now. Well, <laughs> okay, but it, that, that's given the, the caveat that, you know, the metabisulfate uh, approach that I took is perfectly fine if the water profile that you have in your area matches into what you want to do. Yeah. All right, if you're going to... You know, if you go to get the RO water, it's because you want to do something like a Pilsner, which you can't do here with LA water. It's pretty challenging transporting 20 gallons of water in your car <laughs> and hauling it up a, a staircase. Uh, so, Well, that's why you have a strong back and strong shoulders, right? <laughs> um, yes. So let, let's talk. You know, Now that you guys have seen what I did, what would you do if you were doing a brew day like this? Yeah, I mean, we we got some simple sandwiches. We got some pizza. Yeah, we we had beer too. We had a few beers for research purposes. Half a dozen since I've gotten here, pretty easily. Half a dozen since I've gotten here for sure. And he key late. Yeah, very late. So, what what would you guys do if you were running your own communal brew session? Um, well, uh, do, uh, do some pre-setup, um, of yeah, course. I, be, I didn't do that today. <laughs> <laughs> Give it your hard time. Um, and, uh, I don't know, I probably, um, I definitely have a recipe and all the grain on hand, um, beforehand and, um, I've always got the grain on you know, uh, probably, uh, live close by to a, a fantastic sandwich shop. So that would, that would be a crucial step. Yes. Uh, uh thank you. Uh, Lee's Hoagies here in Pasadena, California for providing us with a wonderful chicken hoagie. <laughs> you, sir, what would you do? Ah, oh, man, I can't really say I'd do much different. It seems like uh, we had most of everything prepared, to, ready to go. Uh, so, yeah, I'd say the only thing comes down to, once again, is the... What would you do? What would I do differently? Yeah, what would you do? Well, not, not even differently. What would you do if, like, if you were hosting a brew day like this? What would you do to make it your brew day? I'd probably have smoked a brisket or something and uh, prepared some some food. <laughs> I'm usually hands on with the food. Oh, yeah. Right? No, I I usually am too. This this year, this year it just makes, was not. Drew makes some of the best burgers you could ever get. We'd have uh, some pulled pork, maybe some brisket. I'd make some tacos, some taquitos. All right, next year you're on food duty. <laughs> there you go. Derek, what about you? Um, I don't know. Um, lusty, just thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> something, uh, something a little fun, maybe. You know, is, uh, I, I know you use different yeasts. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe like a little. Uh, let's let's uh, spin the wheel, get some random yeast in there, just to see what some. You know, just a, something a little experimental. I like experimenting. Uh, or something a little adjunct. We just pick at random to throw in the beer, and, mm-hmm. or cast condition something after it's uh, you know done fermenting or whatever. Yeah, like yeah. Your, uh, clam chowder. Yeah. Oh yeah, oh, the clam chowder beer. Yeah, uh, Drew, uh, like your clam chowder beer that you made. What was it last year? Oh no, that's that's a while ago now. That's a while ago now. Four or five years ago now. Oh wow, four years ago. Yeah, I guess I've been following a little too long. It all seems to blur together. (laughs) Surprisingly, you you, you think it blurs together? (laughs) 
<laughs> I come, do. Come, come live in my shoes. <laughs> it all blurs together. But no, the, the, the clam chowder beer, I love that one just because that one always makes people go, you did what? And it's, it's an eyebrow raiser. Yeah. Hmm? yeah. So and that and that's fun to do. So Dirk, you you would you'd want to introduce an element of randomness. We got Absolutely. some, yeah. We we've got you know good meats involved. And, I like and, to go off the wall. <laughs> and, and, and by the way, when we were ordering pizza for this, uh, you know, little end of the brew session uh, thing, the rule of thumb that I heard from you guys was, uh, I don't do veggies. <laughs> <laughs> All right, as long as it's on a pizza. All right, so Eddie, what would you do with your brew day? I would do basically the same thing everybody else just talked about. You know, put out the equipment that's uh, interesting that probably people haven't seen before, um, some yeast that people haven't seen before, some hops people haven't seen before, and have a good time doing it. What would you brew? I would probably brew an IPA and a porter. IPA and a porter. All right, good. Classics. Yeah, I love my classics. Good, strong. All right, Dave, what would you brew? Uh, right now, I'm Aritzen. Uh, you know, tis the season, uh, so I'd probably go that route. Oddly enough, people should pay attention to the next episode of The Brew Files, which will come out just after you hear about this episode. All right, what would you uh, What would you brew? Uh, what would I brew? I would probably go with a uh, New England IPA and a uh, oh, nice blonde ale. All right. I would brew a IPL and a uh, a Belgian, I think. So why an India Pale Lager as opposed to a Pale Ale? Well, I've I've actually I've never brewed one before. It's always something that uh, you know lagers are supposed to be a little more challenging for the home brewer, uh, and uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, you got to have a, a little bit a little space for that. Um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a bit of a more unusual style and uh, something that uh, you don't really see commercially. So um, unless you actually go down to the brewers uh, breweries and uh, yeah. So last question before we uh, go dig into the pizza and and try and see if we can uh, polish off whatever beer remains, although that's still going to be a challenge, I think. Yes, no. No challenge. I think we've already done most of it. I got your second wind right here. What do you like, love, worship about homebrewing? The process itself, not even even beer. It's uh, the act of... uh, uh, of putting together a uh, your own home brew system and experimenting with different processes and uh you know it can get pretty expensive at times but uh, uh i can't even i can't even count how many systems i have uh <laughs> tucked away in the, in the closet somewhere but uh yeah definitely probably the the whole process itself and you sir uh, not to give a similar answer, but uh, I really ap- enjoy the experience of slowing everything down a bit. And uh, you have a an, uh, this was a nice what was it? We've been here for about eight hours, mm-hmm. and uh, you know there's a lot of time to control a lot of different aspects into what goes into the beer, and uh, to to fine tune what you're looking to achieve. And you know whether it's with home brewing or. Uh, I don't know, cooking or with uh, uh, shaving with a with an old fashioned razor. I like the the slowing things down because here in LA everything is so fast paced, and it's, sometimes it's nice to sl- take time and appreciate what you're doing and yeah, just, just stand back for a moment, take a breath. Exactly. Now, and by the way, I will say that yeah, we we took eight hours today, but you know, 
usually if I'm on my own, I'm a I'm a lot faster. <laughs> but it, it's just more fun. That's okay. You're probably a little more sober too. Usually. Um, all right. And so D, yeah. what about you? I, I mean, the process or something for that. It's. Uh, I mean, one of the best best bits of advice I ever got was uh, Bob Brewing was from MB, and she told me that you know uh, Bre- MB is uh, Mary Beth Rains, who right. is an old, a longtime member of the Falcons, and most famously online at least. The author of the Maltose Falcons Guide to Yeast and everything go. else that people refer to. Right. She and she told me uh, once uh, that, that you know brewing is just a lot of steps done correctly. You just have to make sure these little, just a bunch of steps. I have a checklist. Just make sure everything's done properly. Make sure everything's clean. But there's um, a lot of different ways to do those steps. Absolutely. A lot of little nuances. And uh, and that's what goes into my second part of it is, is the, it's definitely an important part, but it's really the love. It, it's, you know, you're building love because nobody ever says oh my god uh, the brewer's here crap you know it's 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 hey the guy with the beer is here you know that this this is it's it's a spirit um it, it makes people happy and um it just brings a lot of positivity and that's what i like most about it it's just it's a very positive force in the world well and we were talking earlier that you can you can take a look at brewing and understand how it works and then understand that I mean, of the thousands of breweries that we have here, even just in the U.S., that you can go between them, and none of them do their processes exactly the same. You know, everybody's got a slightly different tweak, and that's part of the reason I think to do this. So, Jersey, what do you like? Oh, I like a lot of things. I like the process. I enjoy um, getting everything together: the ingredients, the the equipment. Making sure the uh, you know the scientific effort you put into brewing the, the temperatures are correct the ratios are correct. I enjoy experimenting with ingredients I haven't used before. It's a fun process if you're an engineering or scientific bent person. Mm-hmm. But by the way, I do want to say it's really really funny given who I am and what I enjoy that almost to a person you guys have all said. Oh, what I really enjoy is the process. Yeah, and and like of course the product too. Like, and I'm I'm not an anti. I'm not an anti-process person, but you know, like the the process is arguably to me it's like going, oh yeah, I got to do the process so I can get to taking this recipe and making it happen. Like I'm a recipe guy. I, l- I like to play around with the ideas. You know. Um. All right, well, guys, bef- uh, before we break, any last thoughts? What do we got? What else is in the cooler? <laughs> what else is in the cooler? <laughs> we made some really fun beers today. We uh, learned some uh, new tricks with some new equipment and had a good time. Well, speaking of toys, I think uh, another good one was the uh, uh, Milwaukee refractometer. <laughs> that uh, uh, if you ever struggled with the hydrometer or broken or your broken glass mm-hmm. and and had to throw a batch away because that got glass in it, uh, you should definitely look into uh, a refractometer. But a digital refractometer. Well, I was going to say yeah. So uh, for listeners. I have a Milwaukee digital refractometer. It's a little green uh, gizmo, MA837 or something like that. And, yeah, you, you take a sample of work, drop it on the on the eyeglass, press the button, and you get back 9.6 Play-Doh or whatever. And it's just very nice, super convenient. Although we did learn a thing today because we had it out. Uh, I had it out here in the backyard to show everybody. Oh, hey, look! See the cool little toy. This is how this works. And we put the wart sample in, and then it came back and it said ELT. 
and none of us knew what ELT meant until we went and pulled up the uh, the guide, the the manual for the thing, and went, oh, the external light is too high. I've got to go now <laughs> walk this thing back into the brewery so that everybody can go and read it, and then show that to everybody. But yeah, I, I love that little gizmo. It's fantastic. I like the surety of the number on the screen for some reason. Just don't use it in sunlight. Yeah, just don't use it in sunlight. But I think all in all, today has been a fun day. Yeah. I mean, Absolutely. I think we've all learned some things. Yeah, yeah I had a great time. And, uh, you know, we've also learned that sometimes uh, I will run around going, wait, what What? What just happened? Hey, I, I need you to go clean that thing. Uh, <laughs> by the way, if you are a brewer and you're thinking about hosting a thing at your house, one of the biggest wonderful things about it is that you can finally experience the pure, <laughs> untapped joy of a professional brewer going, oh, hey, can I thank you. you. <laughs> thank you. You're here. Can you do grains out? Yes. Yeah. Also, Ed, if you can get us 40 pounds of ice, that would be great. Yeah. yeah, thank you, Ed, for getting us 40 pounds of ice. I love you, buddy. I love you, too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, so with that, guys, I think it's time for us to have some pizza and some more beers. But, Again, I know that opening up your home is a, is sometimes a weird and a strange idea of something to do, but I really enjoy it. I think there is a lot to learn. There's a lot to learn not only as you know somebody who's coming to do it, but there's also a lot to learn as a as a host because you realize as you're trying to teach people or show people what you do that the, it puts a focus and a spotlight on like your actual process, what you're doing, and makes you go, "Ooh, that's a little weird." I, I should probably do something about that. Or, hey, maybe I need some more tubing, which I do. So <laughs> Always need tubing. Always more tubing, always more seals. Yeah. Yep, always more tubing, always more seals. Buy in bulk. But again, <laughs> if you guys ever... I mean, brewers, if you ever just want an excuse to have a good day where you're hanging out, you're having some beers, and, oh, hey, by the way, you're making some beer, invite some friends over. You'd be surprised what happens. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Drew. Thank you, Drew. <laughs> well, man, that sounds like it was a fun day, and nobody sounded too drunk. No, we were fairly responsible. Mostly. <laughs> kind of. Somewhat. It, so it sounds like uh, some people took some good lessons away, and I'm really surprised by the number of people there who were unaware of the grandfather. Yeah, that was kind of fun to see. And then, uh, of course, there's additional news in there. I think we're allowed to break it now, aren't we? Oh, I think so, too. Yeah, so we have our, on our, you know, as part of the play date at that time, uh, we have the brand new version of the Grandfather Conical, and most importantly, with the Grandfather household glycol chilling unit. But <laughs> but it is pretty pretty fancy. We're beta testing the uh, glycol chiller for the Grandfather Conical, and uh, it should be available for everybody not too long from now when we're done with our beta testing. Yep, and you'll hear more about that in next week's episode in the Brew Files. So, That's right. Uh, but yeah, I, I highly encourage you guys, if you have a chance, have an open brew day like this. It's a good change of pace. You know, uh, It's a little bit more of a party, a little bit more you know, people having fun about doing beer. But still, it's a good time. And you should do it. People learn and you build a better community. Not only do the people who are coming there learn something, but you learn something from teaching them. It forces you to uh, analyze and think through your procedures in order to talk to people about them. And there are times when uh, you can you can really get a lot out of that yourself. 
Absolutely. And speaking of helping people learn, I think it's time to answer some questions. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family hop farms to the world's finest brewers. Yakima Chief's cryo hops represent the most innovative technology in hop processing, using a patent-pending cryogenic separation process which preserves the components of each hop fraction. Cryo hops pellets provide intense hop flavor and aroma, reduced vegetal flavors, and increased yield. Available now to commercial and home brewers. Learn more at yakimachief.com. Hey, everybody. It's time for us to answer some of your questions. We're going to do as best as we can. we got four questions today, so let's get right into it. And the very first question goes to Denny. It comes from Andy McHenry, who wrote in via email. Hi, Denny. How are you? I have a question. I've done my American IPA several times, and usually it winds up close to finishing out at 1010. Every time I brew it, it is always 1060 OG. I've had it fermenting for two weeks now and took a gravity reading, and it read 1018. Not sure why it's that way, but I'm sure it's a process issue. I was doing two batches that day, and while I was crushing the American wheat beer grains, the strike water may have been too high to start, maybe between 160 to 170 degrees Fahrenheit. But here's the deal. I'm an experienced brewer to know that I have to wait until the strike temperature gets to 168 before I start. Anyway, I looked at the style guidelines, and it looks like it's barely within the style on the higher finishing gravity end. As an experienced judge, have you ever known of an American IPA that has placed first, second, or third based on a 1018 OG, or well, 1018 FG, or do you think the perceived multi-sweetness would result in being docked off for being out of style? I understand you as a judge wouldn't know those FG numbers unless the brewer indicated it, or you learned about it later via email. Thanks for your time, and sorry about the novel. My main fear is being kicked out of the style based on too multi-sweetness residual sugar perception. Thanks. Well, you know what? I'd say it doesn't matter. It's all down to what the beer tastes like. Uh, you pretty much hit the nail on the head when you say the judges won't know anything about the beer. So what does it taste like to you? Sit down with a glass of the beer and read through the style guidelines. Pretend you don't know anything about that beer, just like the judges won't. Does it taste like what you're reading in those guidelines? That's all that matters, and if it tastes like it, that's what it is. Remember, sweetness is relative to your hop load, not the final gravity. I've made IPAs that finished at 1018 and didn't come across as sweet at all. So don't worry about the numbers. Uh, Homebrewers get way too hung up on numbers. Worry about what the beer tastes like and take it from there. Yep. Taste is king. Yeah, exactly. Next question. Okay, this one is for Drew. It comes from David Bucker, and David says... For some reason, somehow I am consistently over-carbonating my beer. It's happened several times on four different beers. A cream ale, a milk stout, an Irish red, and a New England IPA. The cream ale is starting gravity. 
was 1060, slightly off target of 1054, with a final gravity of 1.008, again off target. This one was fermented with USO5. The milk stout starting gravity was 1068, with a final gravity after two weeks of 1030, way off target, and used Lollamond Windsor yeast. Uh, a little aside here, yeah, that yeast will do that. The Irish Red starting gravity was 1052, with a final gravity of 1.006, and that used USO5. The New England IPA starting gravity was 1066, and the final gravity was 1012, using Lollaman Nottingham yeast. All batches were 5.5 gallons, ferment temperature held steady at 68 degrees. I still bottle condition everything, unfortunately. The cream ale had four and a half ounces of corn sugar added at bottling. The milk stout used four ounces. The Irish red used five ounces. And the New England IPA, four and a half ounces. All four of the above were way over carbonated, producing more foam than beer in the glass. I wouldn't think it was the yeast as it is different in two of the four. Also, since the temperature is a steady 68 degrees, that should not be the problem either. Am I adding too much corn sugar, or could this somehow be related to missing the target final gravity? Well, so uh, when I first got this email, I kind of pondered it for a little bit. And so looking at five gallons with 4.4 ounces of sugar for beer stored at 68 degrees, at least according to all the calculators, will yield pretty much dead on to 2.5 volumes. So looking at the numbers that David listed, you know, I mean, all the stuff that he's got there is right in that line, except for the Irish red being a little high. So I wouldn't exactly see any reason for the sugar to be the cause here. Also, to the, the other question that David asked, I don't see any reason for the final gravity to have that impact. If anything, having a lower final gravity will you know, end up maybe not giving you as much carbonation, right? Because you're not going to have any any leftover sugar in the beer itself also doing re-fermentation in the bottle. So too low a final gravity? is not going to cause a carbonation problem, at least you know, not the way that you're thinking. And to my mind, the most likely culprits are either inconsistent mixing of the sugar or miscalculation of the volume of the bottling bucket. That's a very common one. You'll have people who do, oh, well, I've got, I made a five-gallon batch. I've got the beer in the bucket. I'm going to mix in the, the sugar for a five-gallon batch, and it turns out they have a four-and-a-half-gallon batch in the bucket. So David actually wrote me back and and – he said he weighs the sugar, he uses the same digital scale, uh, hasn't noticed any weight problems on the scale, and no notable inconsistency with individual bottles, which shoots down both of my my theories. Um, and he also says the volume is consistently between five and, five and a half and six gallons. So, And that the milk stout missed so much because he added lactose to it, so I'm guessing the lactose actually pushed the final gravity reading up. So his other question afterwards was, he says he recycles all of his bottles. He uh, cleans them with PBW, rinses, dries them, and stores them. Bottling day, he sanitizes before he fills. And he was wondering if there was something about older bottles possibly causing problems. You know, they're maybe about two or three years old, but they appear to be in excellent internal condition. And I can't see that being a problem either, because older bottles, the problem they usually give is they break. Or they have an inconsistent seal, which would lead to lower carbonation. So again, I'm not seeing anything here that would give me a good handle on why you'd have too much carbonation. What do you think, Doug? I, I mean, it's really hard to say. Uh, first of all, I would like to know how he is determining the amount of sugar to use. And he says he's weighing it. Well, no, but I mean, what calculator is he using? How did he decide that amount? Oh, well, uh, since given his amounts line up to what I see in like Beersmith and Brewer's Friend and whatnot, I, it's 
probably one of those. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, it's not too far off. I mean, I, I typically use you know five ounces, just kind of like as a as a go to number. But you know, there's something there's something that's off here. Either the calculator was not used correctly, um, maybe somehow um, the temperature was not as steady as he thought it was. If it got warmer, that would uh, drive off more dissolved CO two, and you know, make it make it overcarbonated. Well, no, no, no. Make it undercarbonated. See, that that's my problem. Is that almost all the things I can think of, like the temperature being too high, right. they would all lead sure. to undercarbonation. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It would be the other way. If the temperature was too low, it would retain more dissolved CO two. So when he added sugar, it would overcarbonate it. So, you know, is, is your thermometer accurate? Uh, who knows? Yeah. So isn't that interesting? Something, uh, something to ponder, and listeners, if you have a thought, because obviously between Denny and I, we're sitting here stuck scratching our heads, going, "Huh?" Uh, if you yeah, have a thought, exactly. If you have a thought, email us at podcast at experimentalbrew dot com. Tell us what your ideas are, and maybe David can get some help out of that. Our next question comes uh, from Ryan Heivel via email, who says, "I purchased the Taprite dual body CO two regulator a little over a year ago. So that's one of the ones that has the gauge to tell you how much CO2 is left in the bottle and almost how much CO2 you're putting out of the line. It seems to be acting a little weird, and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts. I'll set it to 12 PSI, and over the course of a few days, it may drift up to 13 or 14 PSI. The other symptom I'm noticing is I'll get a few inches, sometimes up to a foot of CO2, in the beer line right off the shank, which I assume the faucet is also filled with CO2. I open the tap, and there's a split-second delay, assuming the CO2 in the line going through. Then the pour is about half foam. All subsequent pours that night are fine. So I don't believe the beer is overcarbed. But do you have any idea of what caused all that CO2 to leave the beer and end up in the beer line? I do have a fan that circulates the air, so I don't believe it's due to the temperature differences of the keg to the line and faucet. Could it be a faulty regulator? Any good way to calibrate slash test a regulator? So I actually emailed because, uh, look, I don't know everything as much as I'd like to pretend I do. <laughs> yeah. And I have a friend who actually works in the beer beverage uh, dispensing industry and gas industry. His name's Craig Wickham. He's been doing it for ever and a day. And he says the regulator is probably fine. The creep might could be due to the possibility that the beer in the keg is slightly overcarbonated for the regulator set dispensing pressure. AKA you get some backflush from the, the keg coming out because the keg has more CO2 in it than the, the pressure is putting out from the regulator. It sounds like the balancing act, uh, say the beer has been carbonated to a certain level, leaves the keg stable at 14 PSI. Then you try to dispense the beer at 12 PSI. If the check valve leaving the regulator has failed or there is not one there, it could make the reg creep up to 14 PSI over a bit of time. And it could also cause the CO2 to come out of solution in the line and accumulate at the high point up next to the valve. Two things to try. One, try resetting the pressure on the regulator up to, to 14 or 15 PSI. Two, try venting the beer in the keg without the CO2 line attached to degas it a bit. Maybe get it down to a level that is stable within 12 PSI. At the same time, reset the regulator and leave it not hooked up and see if it creeps up without anything connected. This is the test to recalibrate. A certain amount of patience is necessary as these fixes are not instant. Probably overnight is sufficient. Drink on it or sleep on it. When a poppet fails on a regulator, it will actually severely overcarbonate whatever is hooked up to it before it blows the R valve on the reg or the keg. And the R valve, he means the release valve, so that PRV. So that's Craig's uh, discussion there. And basically what he's saying is that more than likely you have a problem with the check valve somewhere in the line and that your beer itself is actually slightly overcarbonated, it sounds like. 
you know, that makes sense to me. I, I'm still using picnic taps, so I have no no input on that whatsoever. Well, but if you leave the picnic taps hooked up, you'd see the same problem. I mean, this is not unique to the fact that. Uh, yeah, you're, you're right. So that's uh, that's Craig's uh, information, Ryan. I hope that helps. Uh, if there are any further any further thoughts out there, you know where to find us. All right, last question. The last question comes from Jake Junk. Jake says. Just finished listening to the Rosé Wave podcast episode. Good stuff in there. I'm certainly interested in exploring this pink beer topic and bouncing around some ideas and base styles that I think could work well. My question for you, oh wise one. Oh, man. <laughs> talk, about, talk about feeding your ego. Would there be any special considerations needed when entering a beer of this nature in a competition? Would you enter per the base style and mention special ingredients used? Go to the experimental category route, fruit beer. I appreciate your insight. I think sometimes deciding what category to enter not-so-straightforward brews under can be the hardest part of a competition. And now you know why I don't compete anymore. <laughs> yeah, right. Me too, man. Yeah, so I agree, Jake. I think you're, you're, you got one idea out there that's right. I would not enter this under a base style with uh, special ingredients listed. So if you, for instance, made a base wit, I wouldn't put this in the wit beer category and then say, oh, with hibiscus and da-da-da-da-da. If you're just doing hibiscus and no fruit, so no berries or anything like that, yeah, I would go straight up experimental. And if you have fruit in it, I think the question that you'd have to ask yourself before you decide whether or not you want to put it in fruit is how potent is that fruit? Is the fruit the primary driver of the the beer flavor. If it is, then yes, put it into fruit beer category. If it's not, then I would still put it in the specialty category. Yeah, I would say that it has to be one or the other of those categories and really no more choices. Uh, I know that when I've judged in South America, I see all kinds of beers with strange things, including hibiscus, and most often they go into a fruit category. But, you know, do what you think is right. Yeah, because the challenge is that uh, hibiscus or jamaica, it's a flower. It's not a fruit. So it's really more of a spice. Yeah, that's true. I mean, uh, so I guess, you know, either way. Yeah, but then uh, but then again, you get into the same thing where it's like, you know, tomatoes are fruit and not a vegetable, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, really. So those are our questions for the week. We hope that you guys enjoyed that segment. Don't forget, you can always send us a question at questions at experimentalbrew.com, or you can always leave us feedback on Facebook or wherever else that you find us. We'll We'll get into the right category. So now I think it's time for us to get people on the road. And to do that, we always end you guys with a quick tip and something other than beer. And the quick tip this week comes straight out of my boif uh, session the other day is, well, this should be a no-brainer reminder, but uh, before you have people over or before you're going to brew, go through your brewery the night before and clean everything up. It helps get the day off to a good start. Unless you're like me and always clean everything up right after you get done brewing. You don't have to worry about it. Well, yes, but at the same time, you know, there's always things happening in the brewery, so things always get messy, at least in my brewery. And then, of course, something other than beer, because life life is not just all in the glass. And this week, as we were getting ready to tape, we got news that Hal Blaine had passed away. Now, who's Hal Blaine, you may be asking yourself? Well, if you're not a, if you're not a fan of remembering session musicians or knowing all the players on a particular track, you probably have no clue what that name means. However, I guarantee you, you know exactly who Hal Blaine is. Especially if you're my age. Especially even if you're my age. Uh, Hal Blaine was the drummer for, for a group of session musicians that called themselves The Wrecking Crew. And The Wrecking Crew was 
responsible for the sound of so many tracks from the 60s and 70s that it's ridiculous. I think Hal Blaine's like credited on like over 5,000 tracks. Uh, it's bananas. And, uh, you know, you know, like if you know any of the, you know, say any of the Phil Spector wall of sound stuff, you know, if you know, uh, there was one period of time where he won awards going back to backs for doing Herb Albert, Frank Sinatra, <laughs> like all sorts of different performers. Yeah. If you're into Motown music, you know, the wrecking crew was on all of that. Yeah. And so Hal Blaine, uh, if nothing else, you know, go listen to the drum fill on uh, Be My Baby, of Ronnie Spector. That's him. That's his sound. Absolutely amazing. And the reason that we bring this up is, one, he was, I think he's like one of the last members of the Wrecking Crew to pass. Um, I believe so. Yeah, there's a, there's still a few left. I mean, the Wrecking Crew was a, a very large crew, but he was probably the last key member to pass. And so that brings into mind that, well, in, uh, I think it was 2015, there was a really great documentary that was released called The Wrecking Crew. And, you know, it was amazing because you got to watch, you know, the film video of these guys doing all this stuff. It's available on Amazon for, for rental. A couple of different places will have it. But by all means, it's, it's, it's been on Netflix before. It might still be. Yeah, I checked. It's, it's not on Netflix currently, unfortunately. Um, okay. But at the time of this taping. So do yourself a favor. If you do love, you know, old music and you do love to see how it was kind of made. Go watch this because I think you'll you know you'll you'll be really surprised and it was really the time of like the famous session band musicians so the Wrecking Crew and well the guys who eventually became Booker T and the MGs and you know all those guys definitely give this one a shot definitely this is a movie that uh, I've watched over and over again the story is fascinating the music is incredible go find it yep and thank you Hal Blaine for keeping the beat that's right ninety years old way to go man yep. All right, time to get out of here. Yes, indeed, it is time to get out of here. Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. I hang out on a bunch of different beer forums, mainly the AHA forum. Come on over and join us there. You don't have to be an AHA member, although you should be. Drew hangs out on the homebrewing subreddit and the Slack homebrew channel, as well as a lot of other places. Don't forget that if you want to ask us a question, suggest topics or recipes or experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And of course, you can always leave us a voicemail or send us a text at 626-765-1AL. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.